Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion that from the outside may just look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk about news and politics. Yeah. And history and society and all those things. And Eurovision. <laughs> Mainly Eurovision, which doesn't come under any of the... Well, actually, it does come under politics now, because Israel won. <laughs> it's always come under politics. Yeah. Because it's an explicitly political thing. Because no one watches it for the entertainment. <laughs> when Marx was talking about base and superstructure, yeah. in the way that societies like are run and, and power is, is concentrated, mm. he never thought of something that would so perfectly overlap culture and like politics and economics <laughs> as Eurovision. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> Do you remember years ago when Eurovision was, um, well, it was mental and it was out there. They like they tried stuff. There was like hardly any fire this year. Mm-hmm. Um, the most visually startling thing was the Israeli in yellow face. Um, which yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, other than that, it was like it was pretty terrible. We did see um, a North London activist, <laughs> dractivist. Doctor activist, um, it took the mic from um, the Cause, British. Yeah, because we were aware editor. of him, like before. Yeah, because he's put leaflets on the tube. Yeah, he put leaflets on the tube, and we'd stumbled across like his uh, his Facebook page and his, his Twitter page. Yeah, it's like great. oh, the classic lone <laughs> lone activist, bravely yeah. resisting all of the powers of the new world order by himself. Yeah, from did a flat. Did you watch that video of him? Um, did you watch that video of him? Um, smoking a cigar, explaining how the, how the Brit, how Great Britain works. Whilst, well, it sound well, it looked like he was standing in front of one of those standard um, mock Tudor houses you see all along the li- all along the side of the North Circular. Yes, and yeah. so just standing outside, you can hear the cars. And he's just smoking a cigar, explaining to you about how there's a section of British society that just wants to die. <laughs> Pretty great. Um, so you know, it's it's sad. I, I don't know where where he's gone to. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's got black bagged by the Eurovision bureaucrats. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Israel won. Yeah, um, that's gonna like it. It got to a weird. I got to a weird kind of um, vicarious point in watching it. You were where, excited for the idea of oh my god, Eurovision Tel Aviv, and then suddenly it dawned on you, oh shit, there's gonna be people that are gonna die for this singing competition. Yeah, I got that vicarious thrill of having you know the Eurovision program has all those interstitial bits where they're explaining bits about the country and they're. Yeah. You know, coming out. I mean, presumably, the, yeah, there's going to be skits. There's going to have to be skits. They're going to have to put on like, I'm assuming if it if it was in Tel Aviv, I'm assuming there was going to be some hard pumping techno. Well, yeah, we assumed it would in be in Tel Aviv, but then but of now, course they they celebrated winning Eurovision in the greatest way, which is claiming Jerusalem as their as their capital and <laughs> shooting a whole bunch of um, Palestinians. So yeah, it's it'll be an exciting be 2019 Eurovision because, as the Israelis say. Down on the floor, down on the floor now. <laughs> no, dra- no dractivist <laughs> in Jerusalem. Um, yeah, it's going to be grim. <laughs> Still watch it, probably. Yeah, you can't help with it. It's like the bit in the Godfather in Godfather Part Two when, um, like, Michael Corleone goes to um, Cuba and meets Batista, like the dictator Batista, and he goes, "Do not worry, gentlemen. There are no gorillas in the casinos." <laughs> and it's like a horrible, like, you yeah. Know, uh, juxtaposition of can't remember. his actual I, political situation. I watched all the Godfather films like too late. I think I watched all of them in a row. I watched them quite late, and I enjoyed them. But by that point, you couldn't like go on about them because they'd been it's, gone it's like, on about. It's like Scarface. Like I'd never yes. seen it before, but I knew yeah. everything that happened. Yes. Yeah. Um, it it'd been over parodied for you yeah. already. Yeah. 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 But yeah, and then the other thing that's happened this week is 
the British commentary at being really annoyed. United, at, finally united, yeah. around a single idea. An important so idea. Long, uh, so disparate, never really able to bring their full influence to bear because they were applying different little pressure points all across the spectrum of culture, politics, environment, the economy. They could never really make any headway. These people are such experts at everything. But now we've decided that the main thing we should be concerned about is an inaccurate description of white people as boiled meat. Yep. Um, it's... I was really glad that Brendan O'Neill was able to zero in on the main issue of the day. He's which, so you know, good at that. Yeah, you look at some of his headlines going back a while. You've got, you know, he was annoyed at the state being mean to Count Dankula for his comedy. Yeah. And it was just straight comedy. Count Dankula is not a Nazi, yeah. despite those Volknuts tattooed on his arm and him speaking <laughs> at a far-right rally. Um, he is not a Nazi. He's not a Nazi. It's a joke. It's just an elaborate joke. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he um, Brendan O'Neill pointing out that actually fascists do definitely deserve freedom of speech. Doing the whole the Voltaire thing of you know I'll defend to the death your right to say Venusendijuden, <laughs> um, and then saying that calling white men gammon proves the intolerance of the left and that they're the new fascists. So you know, by that logic, shouldn't he talk to them? Well, who best to say who a fascist is than someone who's friends with a bunch of Nazis like Brendan O'Neill? And the the left is the true fascist because being rude to someone on Twitter, that's true fascism. Not, you know, adhering to fascist ideology like Brendan O'Neill does. Not hanging out with all those retired doctors in South America like Brendan O'Neill does. Not all that separating people up by eye colour like Brendan O'Neill does. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Don't worry, I don't think you can get sued for that. I don't think Brendan... It's opinion. I don't think Spite Online has a... You know, they don't have a good base of successfully suing anybody. <laughs> Quite <Yeah>. the opposite. <laughs> it's their foundation bit. Um, it's not a myth, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, we got to see some great things. Sarah Ditton, you know, she just had a great week rolling her eyes at trans people saying that they wanted to be respected. Um so she decided to follow that up with complaining about how referring to someone as gammon is inherently class has incredibly classist undertones. <laughs> yeah, well, she said she described it as, um, "God, it's like we're back in the 18th century with all of the like uh, aristocrats with delicate features criticizing ruddy-faced peasants." And it's like, have you ever seen any 18th-century satire? No. Have you seen John Bull? No. Have she you hasn't. seen Cl- like Colonel Blimp? She hasn't. They're all ruddy-faced aristocrats. That's the basis of printed satire. She hasn't, though. I, I, I know, <laughs> but you would have felt she would have cared enough to find out. No. This is more like... Um, like the, the actual outrage itself is more like... You know how it... Like, how it if you... Like, in, in say, like, um, the Yugoslavian Wars. Yeah. Or with, uh, with Kosovo and Serbia. Mm-hmm. You know how, like... A few people kind of uh, get stabbed in an alleyway, and it it's a police issue, mm. and you know no, nothing ever, nothing like comes of it in a political sense. Um, but if somebody holds like a load of brightly coloured flags around an old battlefield or in a town square that means a lot to a particular group of people, then that's literally that's how wars start. Mm. It feels like this is this is their thing because I think they all suspect they are gammons because they don't really understand what it means. Um, 
it's like I, it, the way that they acted, like Helen Lewis and all of them, all of them. Are oh, acting, I forgot like, about Helen Lewis. Yeah, it's, they yeah. acted like I've like we walked. Someone walked into their living room and called their dad a dickhead. But they hate. And that's how they but, act. So but person. they're liberals. They hate their dads. Um, no, like, they love their dads, but they disagree with um, ever. So, they disagree with them ever so slightly on taxation. <laughs> but that's literally the only difference. Uh, sorry, but yeah, I Helen Lewis to, deleted her tweet to, like to, pretty quickly after she did it. Here we go. This is this is so fucking good. Helen Lewis is really trying hard to get on our 2018 like award show. Yeah, she was because she ran away with it in 2017. Yeah, and she's trying again. So her tweet was, "No, look, I'm sorry, I can't hold it in anymore." That itself is mm. like fantastically her conversational Twitter use when you know the next tweet out of her is going to be like oh I hate Twitter I just it's just such an echo chamber or <laughs> god it's like being punched from all directions at once you know yeah. that kind of thing she says gammon is such a loaded insult because it implies in a sneering way that the person you're talking about is working class people aren't being called pastrami parmaham brisola are they those classic class instincts of Helen Lewis she knows how it goes down on the streets you know what I mean? She's from an honest, hard-working, working-class family. She knows how hard it is to have the gammon man come to the door <laughs> and you not be able to pay him. You have to hide down yeah, at the windows, you do. turn the lights off, so the gammon man doesn't come. Yeah, gammon the, man you from hear, council. You hear, you hear the clinking of his gammon balls. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets back on his horse and gammon van. Um... The thing is, it's like, first off, completely missing, well, deliberately missing. Mm. The reason why that word was used is because it's a word that the people, everyone who was using it and laughing about it instantly knew. Yeah. I I, I I eat a lot of food. I know quite a lot about food. Yeah. I don't eat meat anymore, but I know vaguely what Briosola is. It's um, cow scabs, isn't it? It's really heavily dried... Um, beef, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it is. It's it's really. It's like jerky, but like much more heavily dried. So. It's not even chewy. It's just like crunchy. I think I've never had it. I think, it. So. Oh. I think it's something like. But it's, you know, like cured. That's it. And it's like if they were all saying, "Oh, look, they're like Parma ham." Yeah. Then that would have been a bit weird, and no one would have got the joke. Well, also like ah, yes, that exotic foreign ingredient, Parma ham, that you can get in Tesco Express. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's it. I I would like to think it's disingenuous because then you would have some idea that she knew what she was talking about, and that she had like calculated it. But she saw everybody was going off about it and used her great grasp of class signifiers like coffee, coffee. <laughs> like coffee. Exactly. She's trying so hard to make people laugh. Like I, I refuse to believe she's not just a group of workshop the comedians. The wees- I've never the- seen her in real life. Have you? Um, no, she isn't. Yeah. Um, the reason why the New Statesman is the way it is, though, mm. is, and the, they say these things, is because their understanding of class is based entirely on what you consume. Yes. Yeah. Um, you can't be working class if you have an iPhone or um, or a flat screen TV. You have rudely like overstepped your class boundaries with your flat screen TV or your eating of Barma ham. You eat gammon, only gammon from the gammon man. You know, it's, it's that kind and, of shit. And, like, you drink tea from the tea man, from tea man, from uh, the char lady. Yeah. You know, so it's, is that a reference that she knows? Um, I, I don't I doubt it, but you know what I mean. Like, it's that. It's, it's, it's consumption. That's, that's literally yeah. all they understand. Well, it's consumption and and nineteenth century literature. Mm. Because and like I don't know. Like okay, this keys into what we're talking about today, actually. But 
Um, I had gammon quite a lot. I say quite a lot. Like when I had meat, I had a lot of gammon because my nan was Irish, and that's what she ate. The gammon with cabbage. Yeah, the boiled, most boiled the, gammon. Yeah, the most common. Um, they didn't have like a Sunday roast, like chicken or, or beef or anything like that. Yeah, they would it's eat, the Irish um, to boil things. And... Yeah, yeah. It's actually it was really good. Well, yeah. Um, boiled ham is. But nice. like, I don't know. Is that like is gammon elsewhere a particularly oh, working it's, class thing it's, it's i mean meat it. itself is another entire question because it's a fancy bit of bacon yeah it's a it, yeah i think i think probably like a lot of meats it's probably gone more expensive recently like um corned beef is way super expensive. staggeringly expensive yeah. but um it's probably one of the cheaper cuts of meat it's mm. like it's a fancy bit of bacon in order yeah it's not a steak yeah, it's but so... um, anyway, it's a, it's stupid and it's really depressing. This that of all the things to talk about at the moment, we could be talking about all the people dying in Palestine, yeah. or we could be talking about the rising fuel prices in this country. We could be talking about they could be talking about house prices and access to homes and stuff like that. They could be talking about all kinds of shit. But what do they talk about? They talk about someone said that someone, because they got all angry and ruddy-faced when they were demanding the nuclear annihilation of humanity, <laughs> looked like a bit of gammon. Well, the, it's, I think it's pretty explicable because it's, it's culture war shit. It's, mm. We live in a decaying, decadent first world. Like, decadent in the proper sense of we have nothing else to, to effect upon. There's mm. no like national story or national like project left to do because... Did you not see the twenty twelve episode? It's all, <laughs> it's all it's all done, and so that's all we have to argue about. Because in in their minds, those political questions, even though they've been brought back again, because no one has any housing and no one has good jobs, mm. they've been brought back into focus because they think that their those questions are solved, and they mm. refuse to believe that those questions aren't solved. So what is there left to to do? There's the right kind of um, language to take. There's mm. the right kind of attitude to take. There's things to refine. The class system exists, and so we've refined it in defined it in this particular form, and it will never change. Mm. It's a, a, a stasis thing. It's it's really fucking dumb. I don't even think gammon is like the best one. It's pretty funny, and I have laughed a lot, and I laugh every time, and I refuse to stop laughing mm. at it because those men hold all of the power. <laughs> Yeah, those men get heard every single time, mm-hmm. and I'm really not fucked. Also, it's like the thing is like, oh, they're just Whether sneering they... at, um, like, they're doing the, they're gonna. They're, I imagine someone's already written the thing of the left complaining about the legitimate concerns of working class people, yeah. whereas in actual fact, those people on question times who get that angry and they get that red face, they're all in the Rotary Club. They're all, you yeah. know, it's the, the, the fuck off, fuck off. Just a basic kind of misunderstanding. Like, I think it was also staggering, like how much they misunderstood it mm. because it's like you don't have to be like ruddy and middle-aged mm. to be a gammon that's mm. not what it's about it's an it's not a racial identity it's a political identity mm. and to be honest it's like a pop cultural thing yeah, it's also you know, it's, it's a, a joke that we'd all moved on from yeah it was getting boring yeah so we're moving on to something else now we'll go back to fash it's fine yeah just call them all fascists yeah <laughs> and go back to the old ones I'm still building the guillotine <laughs> but yeah, okay, so we'll go on to our um we're going back to our Our running series. Yeah. If you like that I like quite like yeah. that. Yeah. About this this season. Yeah. About yeah. the the English state's relationship with its unwilling neighbours. <laughs> yeah. 
I keep calling it the Celtic nations, but that's, they are the Celtic nations. They are the Celtic nations, but somehow that like I don't know why that seems like reductive or you know I don't know. No, but at their core, they are still tra- they are still Celts. They're all still you know in Scotland they're all wearing kilts and throwing logs. In Wales they're all listening to druids, and in Ireland they're um, I don't know making deals with leprechauns and fairies. And that is our the end of our running series on the Celtic Nations. <laughs> so we weren't going to do Ireland and Scotland this week, but I think we'll we'll give one episode's worth of time to each yeah. each country. God knows we need it mm. <laughs> because there's a lot of history, mm. you know. Well, and then the next one, the Scotland one, is mainly just going to be us laughing about terrible, yeah. terrible deals they made with the English. Um, Ireland, yeah, right. Ireland has undermined. In so many different ways, uh, British governments going back a hundred years. Yeah. So it's worthy of uh, of discussion. Mm, they um, are. <laughs> that was Robert Peston. Uh, I think like a week and a half ago. Yeah, they are. With man- his exact words, inherently a manipulative people, um, sorceress, lazy, <laughs> because of their Mediterranean heritage. Was <laughs> it Mediterranean? I can't remember. I found a. I found like it wasn't even a, a quote from like a kind of Victorian writer. Mm. It was somebody something somebody had like written on their own web page about the history of Ireland, mm. and they'd written the whole thing about well, of course they're lazy, hot blooded, and always late for everything. Always late to check because points. because the they originally were from the like the Celtic expansion into what the Iberian Peninsula, and they'd brought their hot blooded ways with them. It seems weird because um, that thing you sent me as well. They were also talking about how the other Celts are like kind of hardworking from the indigenous tribes of Northern Europe, and it's like, wait a minute, I've heard this tune before. <laughs> <laughs> you, what a mighty fine Volkner you have tattooed on your chest. <laughs> I say desert people. I don't say the other word. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, Irish history. Mm-hmm. It's quite big. It turns out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the English involvement um, and conquest of Ireland goes back about 800 years. Um, well, they turned up and there was no one to... there. <laughs> and they settled it. Because there was no one there. Who's they? Um, the, well, the English settled it. Because there was oh, no one yeah. there. There was no one in Ireland. <laughs> there was a couple of leprechauns and some... And, you um, know, that was actually like uh, a talking point about... Um, like the Norman, I think it was like the Norman or the Cromwellian, uh, probably actually the Cromwellian like settlement of mm. Ireland, that uh, they settled Ulster in particular because they were um, like nomadic. Mm. They thought it was unpopulated because they would take their they would graze their cattle on the lowlands during the summer, and then in the winter would go up to like mm. higher peaks and disappear. And they would have like loads of temporary houses, mm. um, and that was their argument that there were only like ten thousand people in the whole of Ulster, so therefore it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic yeah. just telling us like, well, they don't use it most of the time Yeah, they're just not using it properly I'm going to use that logic to break into Buckingham Palace and have it they're, they're barely there they sail onto the coast it's like there's no one fucking here <laughs> came all this way <laughs> kill some papists okay so they go to Ireland anyway, and there so, are people there though So <laughs> there are some people there um, well Robert Peston wouldn't consider them people but so yeah well <laughs> the English involvement and, and conquest in Ireland goes back at least 800 years to the Norman Conquest. The modern portion of the conquest runs from Henry VIII and the Tudors. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Parliament of, Parliament of Ireland passed the Crown of Ireland Act 1542 and proclaimed King Henry VIII as King of Ireland. 
The territory of the kingdom had previously had the status of a lordship held by the crown with its own parliament and peerage. They were settled by the Normans, but by that point, kind of Norman authority, royal authority had kind of crumbled away. Actually, it's quite They'd hard for Normans of... to run it, because there's like a whole other country in between. <laughs> it's, well, no, I mean, because they had the English crown yeah. as well, remember? Yeah, but and, also it's like it's and they, a hassle to get. By that point, central authority had kind of degraded. Yeah. They'd kind of bred with the local population as well. So you hear like a lot of talk about like Nor- the Norman Irish, mm. in the same way as you hear about like the Romano Celts and mm. all that kind of thing. Um the territory of the kingdom had previously had the status of a lordship held by the crown with its own parliament and peerage. The kingdom was administered nominally by the King of England who appointed a viceroy, uh, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, to rule in his stead. Uh, the Tudors also presided, presided over the replacement of Gallic Brehon law with English common law. Interestingly, um, Brehon law involves some notion and recognition of communal property, hmm. which is kind of... Inconvenient when you want to divide everything up into a load of privately owned properties. Yeah. Um, How are you supposed to give a title to a person if everyone's sharing? Yeah. Uh, and they required, like, the Tudors required local officials to start learning English, which trickled down until English kind of became the dominant language. Mm-hmm. Gaelic was reasonably widely spoken, although, weirdly enough, not as widely spoken as Welsh was in Wales. Was it one of those things that um, did it, like, was it on the western edges? It was mainly, I mean, during the Tudor period, it's still mainly in Ulster, which is why, uh, kind of, if you're Irish nationalist, Ulster, the like the way Ulster is now and the plantation of Ulster and all that, really great, because like that was the most Gaelic place mm. that had all of the old customs, all of the the language spoken, and then they forcibly Anglified it. Mm-hmm. Anglified it, yeah. That's mm. um, the Irish suffered huge losses um, in the English Civil War, the War of the Three Kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, during Cromwell's invasion, um, about fifteen to twenty thousand battlefield casualties and over two hundred thousand civilian casualties. Uh, Fifty thousand people were also deported as intent- indentured labor laborers if they refused to give up their if they were Catholics and refused to give up their yeah. land, things like that. Cromwell's new Commonwealth confiscated almost all lands belonging to Irish Catholics as punishment um, for rebelling against uh, Parliament during the Civil War. Thousands of parliamentarian soldiers settled in Ireland on confiscated lands. Uh, to put that in perspective, before the wars, Catholics owned about 60% of the land in Ireland, and after the wars, Catholic land ownership fell to about 8 or 9%. It was, some of it was restored under the brief period when James II was king um, and fled to Ireland to escape William of Orange. Mm. Um, it rose to about 20%. Was he the super gay king? Uh, he was super Catholic. Okay. He was the one who they thought he wasn't going to have a son, and then he had a son when he was like fifty-eight, which was unheard of. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I believe you. I'm gonna, I'll talk to Lily about it later. Lily's yeah. the one. Lily gets better marks in her history than you ever did. Oh, I know who you're talking about. You're thinking of the first Stuart. You're thinking of um, James I and sixth of Scotland. He okay. was actually. He has actually recently been pretty much confirmed as gay. How do you do that? How do you confirm it, or how do you be? How do you confirm it? That far, that like like that. Like, I think it's like um, looking at old letters he sent. Oh, okay. To the was it like the Duke of Buckinghamshire, renowned ladies' man. Weirdly. Okay. Um, so you had something called the plantation system yep. under Cromwell, which is where he he invited good, honest Protestants from England and Scotland to come and settle in Ireland and give them lands that have been confiscated from Catholics. Well, the Irish aren't going to farm it properly because they, you know, they turn up late all the time yeah. and they're doing sorcery. Well, that sorcery is what makes the peat grow, so that's what <laughs> keeps us in peat. Peat grow? Peat and mushrooms. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> um, 
They removed land from Catholic landowners and farmers and gave it to loyal Protestants. Their replacement became known as the Protestant Ascendancy, replacing a mixed and contentious enemy ruling class with a loyal one in order to control what they saw as a dangerous foreign population. So you've already got in this period um, penal laws. Hmm. So you've already got kind of the the racialization of the Irish hmm. as a as a as a different kind of biological race. I mean, at the moment they're just keeping it to kind of religious difference, hmm. but you can see like with the Spanish conquest of the Americas, hmm. religious difference when they're encountering kind of indigenous populations can very quickly turn into like biological when you hmm. shift. Yeah, the there's some of, like Victorian when, drawings of yeah. Of um, like was it the there's the the African hmm. and there's the European and in the middle there's the Hiberno Iberian yeah which is kind of somewhere in the middle looking at skull shapes and all that kind of thing. It interestingly, I mean, it's one of the things like when people talk about the Enlightenment and about oh, isn't it great that you know people started embracing hmm. science and rationality and getting rid of all that old superstition, and it's like all it did was shift a system of domination based around religious difference into one based on scientific difference. Hmm. The power dynamic doesn't change; you've just got a different vocabulary. Well, yeah, so that you used to it's like they put, it's like put down that Bible, and then they pull out a phrenology skull. <laughs> isn't it cooler? <laughs> it's so much better. Um, religious affiliation and difference allowed the English to racialise the difference between the with the Irish. Uh, Roman Catholics and non-conforming Protestant dissenters were barred from sitting as members in the Irish Parliament. And under these new penal laws, um, Irish Roman Catholics and dissenters were deprived of civil rights, even down to the ownership of hereditary property. This completed a comprehensive and systemic effort to materially disadvantage Roman Catholics and Protestant dissenters, while enriching a new class of Anglican conformists. So you can already see, like, what we were talking about in the Wales episode, uh, Michael Hector and internal colonialism, yeah. depends on this kind of what he calls cultural division of labour. So you can, by approaching someone and working out what culture they are, what race they are, you can already work out roughly where they are in the social pecking order and what kind of jobs they're going to go into and what kind of, like, rights they're going to have mm. separately. So seems pretty colonial mm -hmm. so far. There were a couple of attempts at kind of industrialization during this period, but um, obviously once you've taken away an Irish ruling class that can kind of direct that investment internally and mm. get basically get rich off an emerging proletariat mm. and industrial processes, um, you've, you're replacing that with an English ruling class that, because of those racial differences, doesn't see the need to invest. Yeah. So kind of all of these attempts at industrialization kind of fail because mm. they are under the sway of a foreign power who doesn't particularly want to... to Make life better for them. And doesn't really trust them. Doesn't really think that... that I mean, it, they think that the Celts are too backwards. They're too... Like like we said at the beginning, too late. Yeah. They can't keep time because they, you know, they go by the moon or whatever. That's also a Catholic and Protestant thing as well. That Obviously, Protestants think Catholics are kind of more into natural rhythm and superstition. They refer to Catholicism as superstition. Well, there is in the, the same worship. The same worship is a it's, it's, it's super pagan. It's, it's the same thing that the Catholics said about the pagans. You're replacing yeah. kind of... But with Protestantism and Catholicism, you're replacing kind of this um, very superstitious, very kind of... Rith like, like, like what they call it, natural rhythms, is when you pull out... Uh, yeah, the rhythm method. The rhythm method. Um, they're more in, you know, in tune with nature, which you know makes them idolaters. Yeah, <laughs> uh, according to a, a Protestant. Whereas the Protestants just don't have sex. Yeah, <laughs> it's literally a Monty Python sketch about that. Is <laughs> yeah, in uh, the it. meaning of life. Fuck it, Monty Python. <laughs> We're not going to have that discussion again. 
Um, Just shows that you've enjoyed our time at grammar school more than I did. <laughs> you internalised it. Similar to Wales, um, as England kind of industrialised and centralised, they saw a different relationship than they had had with Ireland, where previously, all through this, although Catholics are restricted, they have their own parliament, they have their own um, uh, like uh, ruling class. Those decisions are made locally, hmm. albeit under the domination of the English parliament. The Act of Union in 1801 was a response to uh, a large rebellion um, called the United Irishman Rebellion. Uh, it stripped the Irish, it dissolved the Irish Parliament, and instead Ireland would send MPs directly to Westminster. So, although they do have some kind of representation, they are sending it to mm. to England, and so it has a double effect of um, meaning that the ruling class doesn't have to be in Ireland anymore. Mm. If you want power, you should be in London and. Not and and if you have lands in Ireland and you want to be close to power, you should be in London. Like the so well, in the Welsh landlords. episode, like the um the way to become a successful Welshman was to leave Wales. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and at the same time, there's kind of a, a trend in England towards Catholic emancipation. So, previously in England, I think it's up until the 1820s. Um, maybe I might be getting that date wrong. Uh, Catholics weren't allowed to hold um, office. Royals weren't allowed to marry a Catholic. And now in 2017, 2018, yeah. Catholics are free, finally free to do anything they want. <laughs> well, they're allowed to marry royals though, aren't they? Are <laughs> yeah. they? Uh, they are now, yes. But Meghan Markle still converted to the Church of England. Did she really? Yeah. What from... was she before? Oh, I, I don't know. Hmm. American, so wrong. <laughs> um, but she quite, quite quickly converted like to the Anglican was... faith. And it's like... Yeah, I imagine that was done entirely because she had some kind of spiritual enlightenment moment that decided that she was really super into cake. Um, <laughs> she was in a small church in Bury St Edmunds with three 80-year-olds <laughs> and she decided, ah, yes, finally, heaven. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, the weird. It's like the, the royal family is like the last bastion of those stupid rules. Yes. They, I mean, they were. They, they oh, yeah. still had the kind of. Um, but yeah, male, they were at the forefront of succession. Then yeah. everyone copied them then. Whereas <laughs> now. Does everyone copy them? Maybe you're going to see a whole load of. Um, you know, like straight after. Um, what's her name? Married William. Yeah, Kate. Yeah. The, a load of people then married rich middle class people. <laughs> yeah. Because they were finally were a, allowed. <laughs> there were a load of actresses marrying actors. <laughs> Hollywood royalty, see, get it? Ah, There's a similarity. That's it. Get it? it Right. Yeah. Yeah, so Ireland is incorporated directly into the British Empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't really go through it without mentioning the kind of physical cost of imperialism, aside from like the complicated go back and forth, because we know that there's a kind of we know that there's a complicated relationship now between like Irishness and and Britishness, mm-hmm. um, for pretty good reason. There was a huge physical cost of the Ireland laboured under during uh, occupation mm. um, after the eighteen hundred. I mean, before the eighteen hundreds as well, but after the eighteen hundreds especially, um, about an estimated fifty thousand people died um, in the United Irishman Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, the main event to kind of happen in the nineteen uh, in the nineteenth century, uh, regards to Ireland, is of course the famine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they estimate that about a million, million and a half people died uh, due to a failure of the b- potato crop. Yeah. The other um, 
sorry, the thing I forgot to mention was uh, just talking about the famine. Ireland had become very much like a a plantation economy. Mm. Uh, had cash crops in the form of uh, the potato. Um, again, there was another kind of surge of industrialization around the 1800s, mm. uh, cut short kind of by the political settlement after the United Irishman Rebellion. And as Britain was industrializing, obviously less land is being used for farm mm. to farm food. So and so Ireland becomes a useful kind of pri- like primary resource colony yeah. for cheap food to be imported into into England. Yeah. Um, the uh, census taken in 1841 recorded a population of about 8 million. Um, a census immediately after the famine in 1851 counted about 6.5 million, so it's a drop of a million and a half. Um, by the 1911 census, the island of Ireland's population had fallen to 4.4 million, which was about the same as in 1800. Uh, it's considered the second greatest loss of life in the British Isles after the Black Death. <laughs> It's this huge, obviously, transformative yeah. event <laughs> caused almost entirely by not only the dependence upon one crop, but also by the free trade policies that they had imposed, that England had imposed with the Act of Union. Mm. So when English, lando- English landowners owned the land and all the products that came out of it, mm. and that was to be exported rather than used to feed the home population. Yep. And they continued that practice afterwards as well you also see that happen in our, in uh, india during mm. the various famines so uh people the exporters of food will keep exporting food because that's literally all they care about mm. um british authorities really do very very little to alleviate any of the suffering during the famine and it's where a significant amount of the bad blood mm. uh towards the british in ireland comes from yeah uh, rightly so yeah um their population have never gotten back up to that level. It has not gotten back up to that level. I think I remember seeing something that said Ireland will have a population of about, without the various kind of uh, famines and things like that, Ireland would have had a population of about like 25 million now. And I think it has a population of about eight again. Yeah. I think it's just gotten back up to, to those kind of yeah. those kind of levels. So, yeah. Um Another consequence of British imperialism over Ireland is an undeveloped economy. Um, as I said, Ireland had shown signs of developing an industrial economy, um, mainly uh, in the cotton industry. But as the fruits of empire allowed the British to develop more sophisticated technologies, and as their naval prowess meant more stable supplies of raw materials from mm. the Americas, or cotton farms, yeah. again, slavery. Yeah. <laughs> There's not one step in this that is <laughs> fucking horrible. Uh, the only way Ireland could compete directly with the British cotton industry was via lower wages. So uh, you have this gigantic pool of labour and you don't have to pay them very much because otherwise you're not competitive. And so you don't have an impetus to... Uh, it doesn't have, you don't have a reason to develop technological, de- technological um, solutions to a, a problem of production. Yeah. Right? So you don't need to buy a better machine because no. you can just hire three more guys to do it. Yeah. Uh, over time, British supremacy came too much in the cotton trade, and when tariffs on cotton were removed in the 1820s, the industry completely collapsed. Uh, in the northeast, there was some linen production, which didn't make as much profit, so it was never fully funded. Um, but the south, semi-industrial areas were de- actually de-industrialised, so people went back to the land hmm. where you couldn't earn a living because all the land was owned. You had to work as a tenant farmer. 
urbanisation in Britain uh, raised food prices and so the South was forced into, into the subordinate role of supplying food for the market. Uh, the social effect of this was an extensive depopulation during the 19th century because Southern Ireland's new role did not require labour. There were no. literally too many. There was surplus population yeah. for the amount of... By that point, like cheap farming, mm. it's getting easier mm. without even having to put that much effort into it. <clears throat> yeah. Um, <clears throat> this drove Irish people into the kind of opportunity, as we mentioned in the Welsh episode, drove them into um, opportunities offered by the empire itself. Mm. Um, especially in the army. The British army um, was hugely swelled by the numbers of, kind of landless Irish peasants mm. going into it to be able to survive. Um, from 1700 to the end of the First World War, about two million Irish men died fighting for British kings and queens. At the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, it's estimated that about 50% of the British army on the battlefield were Irish-born. <laughs> and even by 1900, with the expansion of the empire and population growth and other regiments and things like that, almost 40% of the British army was still made up of Brit- Irish-born recruits. <laughs> Literally, the stormtroopers, the yeah. heavies. Yeah. <laughs> And in that same period, um, it's suggested that up until about 1950, um, about between 9 and 10 million people born in Ireland have emigrated overall, mm. which is more than the original peak population of mm. 8.5 million. Because that's like the greatest sin of the Irish is what they've, what the mixture of Irish and Germans to make Irish American culture. Yeah. Of it's just <laughs> the worst thing. Yeah. It's like joined by a mixture of, of a similarity of loving boiled cabbage. And hated on people who are of different skin tone. <laughs> well, that's that's where the that's where the Irish differ from the Welsh. The Welsh go abroad, but don't seem to um, go abroad as Welshmen. No, they lose it. They, we they, they, they just give as up. As we on, talked about yeah. in the Wales episode, they they kind of don't take they take their names, but they don't take any particular like cultural symbols or anything with them. Whereas the Irish very much yeah, do. They don't turn up in places open Welsh pubs and serve Welsh cakes, yeah. and glorgan sausage, and eat seaweed. <laughs> Um, um, yeah. So yeah, Irish identity is heavily linked with the empire and mm. the diaspora, both from suffering and from kind of contributing. Mm. Um, I don't think it's it's probably too strong to say like collaborators because I've read some some books that suggest that like the what Irish is... post-colonial identity is marked as much by collusion with the empire that it was kind of a joint project, well, which that whole thing of like, feels um... too far to go, but working class people joining the army of the British Empire mm. there's not like even though even if they they join it and they happily engage in colonial slaughter yeah they're not planning it and they didn't have any other choice there's still not what else are they going to do yeah it's it's reading kind of m- macro intentions mm. like they're not in any way kind of aligning themselves with the imperial project and going I agree with this mm. certainly not at the like army or emigration level mm. um, the middle class in Ireland do somewhat identify um, with the empire uh, there was a kind of period before 1916 when it was quite common for uh, Irish political parties the moderate ones to kind of try and combine Irish nationalism with the empire in the same way as some Welsh politicians mm. do. So it's like, 
we're a proud nation and we're part of this proud community yeah. of nations that make up the greatest empire in the world. Hmm. Um, John Redmond, who was a leader of the moderate, uh, moderate nationalist Irish Parliamentary Party, said, As a nationalist, I do not regard as entirely palatable the idea that forever and a day Ireland's voice should be excluded from the councils of an empire which the genius and valour of her sons have done so much to build up and of which she is to remain. Um... Any genius used in the formation of the British Empire is nothing to be proud of. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what did you come up with? I came up with a really innovative way to kill like a hundred black men at once. <laughs> it's a really, because like common, like, portrayals of, like, negative portrayals of British imperialism now, mm. um, they will have, they'll usually have like an Aristo in charge. Mm. More often than not now, in the British context anyway, the British Aristo will be kind of sensitive to the plight of like the Indian yeah. um, servant or the African miner or, or, or yeah we've all seen those whatever endless parade of Queen Victoria films yeah where she befriends a different person of every continent I mean god I watched that the fucking... Queen Victoria loves loves her children series <laughs> yeah yeah god I watched that um, I can't remember what it was called it was a the one with, the, with the Muslim man uh, or is he I, I, I've seen posters of her with a brown person who's the guy from Downton Abbey Hugh I don't know uh, oh, Hugh Bonneville. Hugh Bonneville, that's it. Um, and he's playing Mountbatten, and he's like very much the I'm kind and liberal, and I understand everything. Don't you worry, I get it. I'm not a racist. <laughs> You're a racist, get out. And that person is usually like the foreman. Yeah. So that's the kind of position the Irish take. It's the foreman of the empire. Yeah. There's a reason why in American kind of stereotypes, early cops are always Irish because they could speak English hmm. and would gladly be paid to want some slaves mm. you know yeah so yeah like irish emigrants soldiers um they all shape and kind of push the empire's goals forward but not maybe in a kind of uh a set like a, a, they, they, they have no sense of what they're doing yeah. for other than for themselves it wasn't a thing you know? planned in small town hall meetings <laughs> yeah in limerick yeah. um you've also got kind of scotch irish um emigrants to america mm. who I think like form quite a significant number of the early wave of like settlers in like the Carolinas and um, Ohio and places like that. They're the real kind of like Protestant psychopaths that we associate the South with today. Mm. A lot of that kind of fifty small town American culture yeah. comes from like a Scotch Irish background, including the fucking like Baptist Protestant kind of thing. Um, there's an interesting statistic about orange lot orange order lodges. Hmm. Um, there's about by the 1900s, there's about 2,000 orange order lodges in Canada alone, and across the empire, there's about 5,000. Jesus. Just local orange order like Protestant Irish identity yeah. clubhouses. Yeah. Um, which is is really odd. There's also an interesting kind of trend with um, the Catholic Irish and their own separate identity within the bounds of the empire. Because remember, like the Catholic Church in itself is a big multinational cultural and religious institution. Mm. I don't know if you've heard of it, the Catholic Church. <laughs> um, it's a kind of somebody I've read somebody describe it as like a spiritual empire across borders that was outside of British control. And so the Irish engage with missionary work, mm. which is important in pushing the boundaries of like European expansion outwards. Mm. Um, and you can see it in like in Australia and America. Once they become populations in their own right, they fight for like their own education systems mm. within the bounds of the empire. They want to keep 
kind of separate and keep a distinctive culture. So yeah. that's not necessarily anti-imperialist, mm. but it is within imperialism and within like European expansion. They also adopt some of the attitudes of their colonisers when it comes to race. Um, it's kind of part of a weird part of emigrant nationalism is thinking that you shouldn't think of the Irish the same as people of colour, mm-hmm. like black people, African Americans. Um, quite a few prominent Irish nationalists um, protested against the idea that they would be considered a colony because if they're called a colony, they, uh, to quote one of uh, Arthur Griffith, I think it is, um, he said that it, he considered it outrageous that Ireland should be treated as a colony because to do so was to put an ancient and civilised European people on the same level as non-white colonial subjects in Africa or Asia. Yeah. So like it's a it's a weird thing. Their interior of the of certain aspects of the Britishness and Europeanness, it's, but they within England itself they're still outsiders. It's, it's, it's a we, bizarre we double game. We couldn't have been colonized because only weak people are colonized. <coughs> yeah, only only non Europeans, and we are as European as they come. Yeah. I'm not sure what wins out there. Whether it's the kind of anti Irish racism that God knows they fucking love to go on about. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a real thing don't get me well, yeah. wrong it was a real thing but then you've got all of these other complications of they're Catholic that's a European tradition mm. you know they are white that's a European <laughs> tradition you know they're all important uh, important signifiers mm. so yeah it kind of continues up to uh, 1916 when there's the Easter Rising uh, Catholic uh, nationalists Occupy the post office in Dublin and um, proclaim a republic. The British respond by uh, sending in troops and shelling uh, the middle of Dublin with uh, cannon fire from, mm. uh, like, shell fire from artillery fire from the sea. Um, after this, the English clamp down a lot harder. Mm. Um, nationalists start to, uh, they actually start to fight a guerrilla war is where the IRA comes from um, and eventually bring the English to the negotiating table skipping over a lot of history here mm. but it's kind of necessary because otherwise we go into each de- each event like quite de- in quite mm. detail um, and most people kind of know what yeah the, the, the more recent stuff with the struggle for Irish independence yeah yeah um, they eventually negotiate a peace treaty with the English in 1921 Um the treaty provided for a self-governing Irish state having its own army and police. Uh, it also allowed Northern Ireland, uh, which were the six northeastern counties of Fermanagh, Antrim, Tyrone, Londonderry, Armagh and Down, um, to opt out of the new state and return to the United Kingdom. They're the mostly the Protestant counties. Mm-hmm. They did that immediately, mm-hmm. <laughs> which created Northern Ireland as we know it today. Uh, however, rather than creating the independent republic favoured by most nationalists, the Irish Free State would be an autonomous dominion of the British Empire, with the British monarch as head of state in the same way that Canada and Australia are. Yeah. The treaty also stipulated that members of the new Irish Oireachtas, which is the Parliament, uh, would have to take uh, the oath of allegiance to the King. <laughs> Obviously, this makes people furious, mm-hmm. because as we talked about with the Gammons, nothing pisses people off like a kind of cultural middle finger. Mm-hmm. You can kill as many people as you want, yeah. but nothing will make people as angry as being forced to salute a flag they don't like. Yeah. You know? Um, the outrage over the treaty split the nationalist movement into two factions, which culminated in the Irish Civil War, mm-hmm. anti-treaty and pro-treaty forces, of which the pro-treaty forces won. Um, 
And so the Irish Free State came into being. Uh, during the 20s, Southern Ireland was still locked into a relationship of dependence with its former imperial overlord. After the Irish Civil War, the bourgeoisie uh, mainly concentrated around agrarian interests. Remember, it's still a largely agrarian economy. Yep. Um, held power. Taxation was kept as low as possible to cheapen the costs of Irish agricultural goods. Social services was kept to a minimum, mainly provided by the Catholic Church. The only major state product of the period was um, the Shannon Scheme. They built a huge hydroelectric plant uh, near Limerick. Um, and it was built near under near slave labour conditions. Uh, unskilled wages labourers were only paid agricultural wages, which ended up in strikes and, and a national and governmental debate over wages and conditions. The dependence of Ireland on agricultural products of Britain translated into um, real, actual political control from Britain. So, as you might be able to tell, the British can't let go of the kind of economic end of their imperialism, mm -hmm. so they still get what they need from Ireland. 4% um, of the population was engaged in the manufacturing industry, uh, whereas agricultural products, largely livestock, constituted 76% of its exports, and these were sold overwhelmingly to the British market. In return for these, the South was supplied with British manufactured goods. Uh, Eamon de Valera, who was uh, the head of uh, one of the main kind of independence leaders and uh, later Prime Minister, uh, Tsok, uh, described Ireland as an outgarden of Britain. Uh, Lionel Curtis, an advisor to Winston Churchill, wrote, The making of the Irish Treaty was one of the greatest achievements of the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> the Irish economy in the mid-20th century fluctuated between protectionism and free trade policies. Um, mm -hmm. There was a short trade war with the British just before World War II, um, and they introduced uh, a protectionist economic policy that put tariffs on imported goods, limits on foreign ownership of Irish companies, and with other exceptions negotiated with Britain to ensure that trade was kept cheap, like they would do individual deals with like coal and with cattle. Mm -hmm. Um, by the 60s, British interests still dominated the South. In 1967, 67% of Irish exports were sold to Britain. Between 1960 and 69, there were 350 overseas-funded projects established in the South. 40% were British-owned, 25% were American, 20% German and 5% Dutch. Um, but Britain's role in the world, kind of economically and politically, is declining in the period. Um, these kind of old colonial links were starting to disintegrate mm. under kind of the world, the globalised economy started yeah. to come into being. Um, the Irish joined the EEC in 1973, about the same time as Britain. Um, as a result of its kind of underdeveloped uh, nature, it started, the, the kind of capitalist class in Ireland started introducing a programme of like tax breaks and uh, grants for incoming companies. Um, also while being very attractive because they've got an abundance of cheap labour. Mm -hmm. uh, by the mid-70s, US investment in manufacturing in, in Ireland totaled $2 billion, which was the highest per capita investment of US capital in Europe. Um, and by 1976, Britain provides less than one-tenth of the foreign capital coming into Ireland. Um, membership of the EEC also kind of replaced the cultural hold that the Catholic Church had. Hmm. So you introduce like uh, adoption laws and equal employment laws, things like that. The same thing that the EEC introduced into Britain. Yeah. Um, okay, so by the kind of uh, late 80s, early 90s, you're looking at uh, the coming of the Celtic Tiger. Mm -hmm. Like ultra high-tech, neoliberal economy, very grateful to kind of multinational corporations and um, foreign companies, really, really loves that foreign direct investment. And Love that's what they've built steel there. Steel and glass, steel and glass, steel oh, and yeah. glass. Like a huge number of... I think at one point they introduce um, free 
uh, higher education for all EU migrants who want to <laughs> come over. Yeah. So obviously they're attracting kind of like people who who are gonna like work in, in high skilled occupations. Yeah. Um, the Irish economy expanded at an average rate of nine point four percent between ninety five and two thousand. Um, and continued to grow at an average rate of 5.9% during the following decade until 2008, when it slipped into recession. Uh, the 2008 recession kind of completely cuts the legs out from mm. under the Irish economy. Uh, they're very much, because they're, they've very much just allowed the global economy to come in and, and do, do whatever it wants. Yeah. It's way more um, vulnerable to kind of fluctuations in mm. the global economy. It actually happens once in the 80s, they have a, a huge financial crash as well in almost the same way like a huge amount of debt accumulated within the economy that then has to be bailed out um in 2008 uh, about 25% of irish gdp was needed to bail out failing irish banks and to force banking sector consolidation now compare that to the us in which is about 5% of gdp mm. you can kind of tell it's like the largest bank bailout in in recorded history mm. Um, emigration starts to rise again so everybody starts to leave Ireland in search for, for work mm. um, the unemployment re rate reaches about 15% by 2012 so you're in kind of a bad a bad yeah. situation again um, so yeah as we've said like increasing integration with international capital Ireland's way more vulnerable to fluctuations in the global market and it's but it's definitely reached that stage of like being a modern society Hmm. And like, what that modernity means is simply that you're just turning down alternatives. Hmm. So they've tried kind of protectionism, they've tried free trade and being in, being dominated by Britain. I don't think like a desire to release themselves from the domination of Britain is what caused them to open themselves to like the world market. Hmm. I think there is kind of a an Irish bourgeoisie who naturally would would benefit from that. Yeah. Um, but like, there's a few Marxists I've read on on Ireland who suggest that like peripheral countries such as Ireland, when they've been decolonized, it was the first kind of modern country to de decolonize. Um, you end up with a very weak um, working class because if the state was weak enough to get taken over by another state, even if the working class were to get hold of that state, it's not strong enough to even resist like to to resist multinational corporations you get hold of a st of, you get hold of like the u.s government hmm. say like i don't know there's a leftist insurgency and they take the leaders hmm. of state they take power yeah that's when you could do some real some real action hmm. but if you're in a smaller country within the world economy you're so dependent you're like your population's day-to-day -day conditions are so dependent on the flows of capital that you kind of keep having to obey those rules yeah that's what people refer to when they talk about like modern empire modern imperialism yeah um there are still core and periphery countries. It's not as clear cut mm -hmm. and it's not quite as, as racialized as it was. I wouldn't say it's entirely not racialized, but it's not, not as racialized as it was, but um, it definitely, there are definitely like big countries and small countries, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, as you can see, the Irish have manipulated the British. Yep. Totally. Constantly with seduction, with seducing them with promises of potatoes and, just good times, yep. the crack, and all that kind of stuff. Um, promising to build them O'Neill's pubs. <laughs> it's weird seeing kind of like Irish history from a 
like because my f- my family uh, my mum's family is Irish and like, I've been over a few times not not so many times since my nan died but um, like from Limerick which has a, it's on the west coast quite like different from Dublin I think it's considered like quite a scummy place um, due to the monumental amount of stabbings <laughs> um, it's actually called Stab City I think <laughs> it's where um, Blind Boy's from from yeah. uh, Rubber Bandits yeah yeah um, do you get the same thing with your Irish family that I do with my Welsh family of them asking you if you consider yourself Irish? No, that's an interesting one because whenever I go over, I am definitely like part of the English. Yeah. Um, except when anyone calls me English, and then I'm <laughs> Irish. Okay. You know. Yeah. Um, it's a weird one. Like, there's still definitely a strong um, anti-English kind of anti-British sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's. It's under it is understandable, but it's also based on a kind of like based on a pride that they were the first ones to kind of decolonize. Hmm. It's a hobby. Yeah, and it, it's I, I know that like should I, reduce the struggle for Irish independence as a hobby, but <laughs> yeah. for the people in the Republic of Ireland, anti English sentiment, anti British sentiment is it's like yeah they they yeah. And like until we force them to leave the EU because of how complicated Brexit is, they we haven't f- fucked them over for the last fight. We haven't fucked them over recently, like in the last ten years. Yeah, it's also. I mean, it's also a little bit. It's also <laughs> a little fa- bit. There were like our pension funds getting ass arsy with them when their when their housing crisis happened. But you know that's not really our fault. There's a kind of that's weird. There's fault. a kind of weird symmetry as well because they've got a sh- a load of, if anything, way more blatant billionaires. Their billionaire and millionaire class is like, imagine if every billionaire in Britain was Mike Ashley and he was twice as bad. Who's Mike Ashley? Mike Ashley, sports direct guy. Oh, okay. You know, really like, I'm clearly, oh, Alan Sugar, right? Mm. I'm clearly a rich man, I'm clearly a, a poor man done good. Yeah, you're. you're and I am now a billionaire. Crass new money. It's, it's beyond crass. Mm. It's like fucking hiring helicopters to go everywhere Hmm. like if you have any kind of like public event you come in on a helicopter to show exactly how rich you are yeah it's like whereas in britain the billionaire class tends to have more of the because they've had experience of it for so long there's it's like a vampire an old vampire doesn't get noticed because he lives quite quietly and keeps to himself whereas a freshly made vampire is out there going crazy attacking all the local virgins and so it invokes the ire of everyone around him. Yeah. What I'm saying is the British are very much the Count Dracula. <laughs> um, whereas New Money would be more like... Um, Lost Boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's been a kickback against the kind of like knee-jerk nationalism, I think. So like Since the 60s. I know Irish historians have definitely tried to... Um, tried to push back against the idea that there was this singular Irish history... That was slumbering for eight hundred years, mm-hmm. while they kind while they were kind of being oppressed, mm. and was just waiting for a moment for the British to slip up for when they could rise up and constitute Ireland whole mm. again. Mm-hmm. Now that has kind of implications for Northern Ireland as well. Mm. Um, obviously, I haven't really gone that much into Northern Ireland because that's an intense subject all of its own. Mm. But like. In many ways, I don't like, matter when it unifies anyway. <laughs> in many ways, the reason I went through all of that, all of that spiel, yeah. was to kind of emphasise that, like, as with most post-colonial countries, I think Ireland is a post-colonial like society. You can definitely mm. use that, that like 
model rubric and model mm. um well i'd, I'd say it's Temporal. more a rubric because it's it's like post-colonial studies generally tend to be concerned with culture and literature mm-hmm. and how that um it intersects quite well with anti-racist discourse because it's about voices that have been denied yeah. or perspectives that haven't been haven't been raised within mainstream culture mm-hmm. but um definitely like a lot of other post-colonial societies the way ireland is now has been directly is a direct result of the oppression it's not something that lay under the surface during oppression mm-hmm. you know people look at why um like the question of why ireland was so underdeveloped because they're looking at a traditional model of how societies develop mm-hmm. so there's like a load of of ruptures within you have a like a feudal society and then capitalism comes and protestant work ethic comes and they disrupt everything yeah and then you end up with what you have now and they still model it on that whereas in peripheral countries like like that's simple for mm. England to say England in many ways can kind of weave a very simplistic narrative about itself but as we found with Wales like the narrative it tells itself about itself yeah. is way more complicated than just there's always been a Wales or there's always been an Ireland mm. it has to it is it's in many ways the creation of its imperial it's imperial past, hmm. you know. Um, like the interesting thing about uh, Ireland and England, like the way they interact, is that all of the images of Ireland are from a very like particular time. So it tends hmm. to be; it doesn't tend to be unless it's dealing directly with Irish independence. It tends to be from about the fifties. Hmm. So all like you know the Magdalene sisters hmm. and Angela's ashes hmm. and all that kind of thing yeah. projects a particular type of like. English idea about the Irish, yeah, you know, and it's almost it is kind of an it. They pretend that they're anti-imperial works, but mm. really they're reinforcing a kind of like a notion of these a notion suffering. of a notion of subjugation and a notion of like oppression mm. and a notion of moral innocence, yeah, as well. Mm. Um, that these are the guys you should be rooting for because look at them; they're so poor, yeah, they're so hungry, yeah. Whereas, like that's that's fine for literature, but for making a society out of it, it's not. It's not something that no. that matches up. It doesn't add up to the whole. No, you know, um, and maybe it's just like English discourse about it. I don't know how Irish cultural figures are received in Ireland, but I find it really weird the way that a lot of Irish cultural figures are kind of appropriated within the English liberal but liberal we're canon. We talked about this before. It goes back and forth because yeah, sure. Because the Pogues are not Irish. Mm. And Martin McDonough, he's got an Irish passport, but he was born and raised here. He's very a, much, he's very much a London playwright. He just writes about Ireland. But I mean, or you think, now you he think writes about, about people Irish. like um, like Oscar Wilde, yeah. Irish, uh, Bram Stoker, hmm. George Bernard Shaw, Samuel Beckett. Hmm. Um, Samuel Beckett maybe a little bit more because I suppose he was actually more prominent in the fifties and sixties hmm. and things like that. But um, they're all kind of like. They don't claim that they're British because that's not what it's about. Mm. And yet, in this kind of way that it's not, it's still not separated. You still have them coming under the great British authors, mm-hmm. don't you? They are they are required learning if you're going to be like a culturally knowledgeable English person. Mm. You learn like W. B. Yeats. Mm. You know, you learn Samuel Beckett plays that mm. kind of thing. It's really weird. Even like um, I was thinking about it as well when I was thinking about like like Irish cultural figures and that, like. The BBC's main, the BBC, the English BBC's main kind of like 
prime time presenters for a long time mm. have been like Terry Wogan. Well, yeah, you look at um, um, you look at Graham Norton. Yeah, Wogan and then Norton. Um, like if you're looking at like I see like Dara O'Brien, mm. he's like top English liberal guy, and he's not English. Mm. I know it's it's also to do with like them like their actual individual careers and, and mm. coming over to England and that's where you yeah. that's where you make your cultural contribution yeah, I suppose. It, to be honest, I don't think you make as much money presenting a show on RTE as you do in is it RTE? Yeah, it's the, yeah, the Irish one. Yeah. You don't make as much money presenting the primetime show on that as you do. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's easy like if you speak if you speak English. Yeah. Why wouldn't you go to here or America? Yeah. It's yeah. like there's that there's that American chat show with a Scottish guy. Um, oh, I know Craig Ferguson. Yeah. Yes, I know. Where did he come from? I have no idea. I have heard of that show. I've never watched it. But oh God no! It's just Don't like we've got this chat Scottish shows. guy who I've literally never mm. heard of mm. presenting this like prime time American chat show. It's yeah. fucking weird. It's weird. It's weird. Um, like how they are taken by the English, and then like yeah, Beckett. Beckett is Beckett is the most Irish. I mean, James Joyce would be another one who is specifically Irish, and yet you could not imagine an English like twentieth century um, body of like literature or stuff without Joyce. Yeah, and in the same way with Samuel Beckett. Yeah, you know, it's absorbed within like it's it's the Anglosphere. Hmm. It's a weird kind of thing that's outside I really British. Do, I don't really do that with Dylan Thomas. Um, Dylan Thomas is very much always Dylan referred Thomas to as a Welsh one. He is the Welsh one, isn't he? He's, Even though he never wanted that, he never liked yeah. it. He never liked being referred to as he a, never as wanted a to regional be a... regional poet. Yeah, I, I suppose that's the he difference as well. They're not they're not regional, mm-hmm. and that's kind of that's kind of weird. Like it kind of translates into like English coverage of like Irish political stuff as well. Ireland's getting more cover because of the coverage because of the Brexit stuff, mm. but at the same time. Like, how many people could name the Irish T-Sock? How many could people can pronounce T-Sock? Yeah, there is that. Um, well, I, f- I find it hard to really... I'm uh, probably pronouncing that all wrong. I'm going to look fucking stupid. <laughs> I think maybe T-Sock? I think it's T-Sock. Um, but anyway. Um, the thing is, it's hard, hard for us to know because we mainly talk to people who are politics. But again, politics, so how, w- how would we ever know? Like, I mean, you know the Scottish, uh, the Scottish leader. Obviously, there's a closer political kind of... Hmm. Bond there. Well, she's another one who's constantly manipulating <coughs> and undermining the British state, <laughs> as is their want. Yeah, but like the the other aspect of it is kind of the the Irish legacy around the world, mm. driven by their imperialism. So, like, obviously, a lot of Irish people in Australia, mm-hmm. um, with all of that kind of mess, <laughs> with kind of settlers and and mm. things like that. Obviously, we've mentioned the Irish Scots Irish settlers in in the south, mm. um, who have that like settler logic when it comes to other races. Mm. Um, there's a really fascinating book um, called uh, "How the Irish Became White" mm. by Noel Ignatiev, which is kind of documents how the Irish kind of get themselves away from this idea of there being a within the Anglosphere being a separate race mm. and kind of integrate themselves into a larger like white race. Mm. Because um, that's like that's also a really unfortunate legacy of of Irish emigration in the fact that sorry a really unfortunate aspect of Irish emigration in that as you've said on numerous occasions Irish Americans are the worst people in the world they are they are literally <laughs> the worst but it's the, uh, it's the the common thing about um uh, like rejoinder to to people complaining about slavery is the Irish were slaves too. Oh, 
and aside from anything, um, I mean, they weren't slaves. They were indentured <laughs> servants. Yeah. Um, they were... And who pressed, wasn't? Yeah, well, they were pressed into service for a certain... It was a feudal relationship, and it certainly wasn't, like, good. Mm. Early kind of records from the Caribbean um, suggest that the the white, like, kind of British plantation owners were terrified of the Irish and Africans, like, combining together um, in a rebellion. <laughs> because they were, you know, both unruly, savage, unmanageable populations of which there were a lot more of them mm-hmm. um but slowly you can see like the saying the irish were slaves too makes a claim to kind of like whiteness as a defensive defensive measure yeah it's there's also like a, a kind of background of well the irish made it so why can't you yeah. to like um oppressed people of color in it's, in white society the homer thing with it's like when he's coming over as um, an Irish immigrant, it's like, first I'll become a cop, and then a dirty cop, and become <laughs> part of white society. Yeah, they've done, like, in Ireland itself, like, as well, like, there's been some, some really unfortunate kind of incidents with, obviously, Eastern European migrants, with being so dependent on, on uh, like, high-skill emigration mm. and immigration and, and things like that for their, for their economy. Um, there's been, like, that, that con that concept and like who was that Irish journalist who talked about um, Priapic Kalashnikov bearing hearties when he was talking about like Ethio he was talking about like Ethiopians and how they're all like murderous savages like getting away with a level of racism that yeah. I was about to say <laughs> would get you uh, sacked from an English paper but actually that's not the case anymore no but, it, would get, it would get you to the point of being able to write a book called How to Understand Britain <laughs> but yeah that's that's us Ireland. first week, I think. That's Ireland, yeah. Um, and yeah, next week we'll do a bit about Scotland. Yeah. It's so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> so dumb, Scotland. Scotland's, Scotland's are more interesting. Uh, well, not more interesting. It's um, it's like the... It's a very do- different relationship than Wales and Ireland. We've done the most oppressed. Hmm. We've done the kind of middling. <laughs> and then we've, we're going to do Scotland, which, you know, it's going to be... Hopefully going to be a lot of Scottish nationalists mad. <laughs> They're always so angry, though. <laughs> it's because, to be fair, it's because they almost got away. That must be so annoying. So, like, you know, you've got your bags packed, you're halfway down the, the driveway, and then it's like at the last minute, you go, oh, fine, I'll stay. And they're so upset about it. <laughs> because, you know, there's Britain at the door, there's there's England saying, come back, come back, I'll do the dishes. And then they come back, and England have not done the dishes. Why does she if, stay? <laughs> if anything, England has smashed up all the plates. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and cut their Sky membership. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, yeah, okay, that's, that's us for this week. Yeah. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at wdtatw underscore podcast. You can follow me at BM Bergamo and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And uh, see you next week. Yeah, cheers. Bye. Bye. Fighting am the least about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to come.